the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And as we do every Tuesday in our third hour, we make welcome Hugh and Lewis Hallman. Hugh Hallman is the former mayor of Tempe, an attorney in town, among other things. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics, LLC. InsightAnalyticsLLC.com is his website. Yes? Yep, that's it. Okay. <laughs> you gave you gave me a look. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you, you spelled correctly. By the way, we solved – you were part and parcel of this whole thing about um, – I noticed there's a new sensor, a sensing device under the water fountain in the hallway. Very well displayed. It's you guys beautiful. being good libertarians, I was wondering why do we now have a sensor under a water fountain? The water fountain has been disabled for low many months now since last March because of COVID. Why would there be a sensor? So I put it out to the audience, smartest audience. We crowdsourced it. Turns out the sensor is to detect a leak. But this is everything you need to know about government and big business bloat. You don't need a sensor to detect a leak when you've disabled the water fountain and it can't be used. I would think that's logical. Right? Welcome to the new administration. Big is bad if it's government or private, right? It doesn't matter, this being a private building. Well, all business gets more efficient at scale, right? So yeah. there's this wonderful idea in statistics called the Pareto distribution. Yeah. And it says basically that in any sort of human creative endeavor – you'll see the square root of the number of people that they are producing half of the output. So mm -hmm. if there's a, a hundred firms, 10 of them produce half the output, which then means that as any organization grows, the average efficiency of its member necessarily declines, mm -hmm. which is then just that corporate bloat, excuse me, bloat nosification that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. but somebody got paid to put yeah. in the sensor. Memos were written, S meetings were held. Somebody sold the sensor. Yeah. We need to have a, a detection advice for a leaking faucet that doesn't work. Right. Yeah. I think that welcome to the new era. Welcome to the new era. Where are we on COVID? By the way, a bookmark uh, for the audience. We're going to get into a really interesting political philosophical discussion in a, in a little bit. Well, it starts with COVID okay. because the big philosophical discussion comes around to this idea that Lewis really challenged us with last week, and that was – the central notion that things will always get better, that the direction of our society, the direction of the world, direction of life and history is toward improvement. Absolutely. King famously said the arc of, of, uh, of, of justice, right? Yep. The arc the, of history the, bends toward justice. The arc of history is long and bends right. towards justice. And it's not true. Which could not be farther from the truth, right. in Go. my opinion. <laughs> Take it away. Yeah. So let's do COVID, though. We'll reach that point. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, locally in Arizona, we have improvement. Uh, we had a large spike, uh, as we all know, that really hit its peak in January. But from that point— January 8th, Lou— Early January. Let's at least be honest about that. Fair enough. Uh, uh, from that point, however, uh, we have seen significant reduction in bed utilization. Inpatient bed use is down a little over 50 percent. Stop. We've seen utilization for COVID Yes, beds. that's right. Utilization drop, meaning that the number of beds filled with patients diagnosed with COVID, either because they came in with COVID symptoms or because they came in for hip surgery and were tested positive for COVID. So they became a hip surgery patient with COVID. But you add all of those up, 
breathlessly, we had 90% utilization of our hospital beds for COVID patients and everything else. And now we're just under 90% for COVID patients and everything else. But what proportion of them now, Lewis, are COVID? Uh, the current proportion is, uh, let's see, just about 18% wow. of our inpatient beds. Wow. And yet, breathlessly, we're still, we have bottoms in beds yeah. because that's the way hospitals stay in business, yeah. just like hotels. That's a huge drop. Right. But you don't see it as a headline so, in the so Arizona Republic. So think of this as simple substitution. So in the week of January 8th, we had a high point of about a little over 5,000 uh, uh, inpatient beds occupied by COVID patients. Mm-hmm. Since then, we've now fallen to 2,300 beds occupied by by COVID patients, which is a decline of 2,700 inpatient beds with COVID patients, but the decline in total beds used is only about four or 500. Yeah. So most of that decline is, substitu- is substitution. Analogously, most of the increase when we have those spikes is, again, regular use turning into COVID patients rather than simply a, fr- a flood of new COVID patients that we're unprepared to handle. Perfect. Perfect. So uh, things continue to go in the direction that one would hope. And the question is, how much of the interventions that we applied uh, are responsible for the reduction in cases? And when you compare places like California that uh, oversized its interventions in contrast to Arizona or Florida that didn't, uh, and the trajectories look very similar, surprise, surprise, California had terrible spikes like Arizona did as did New York and other places, uh, we then should, we hope, start getting smart people who are gathering data and looking at it carefully, recognizing or understanding that they need to study how effective are masks, how effective are these other kinds of activities. Do they have an impact? Absolutely. In fact, we know they've had an impact on a lot of diseases that we transmit among one another. The flu has also fallen somewhat. But in looking today at the number of deaths from pneumonia, not including COVID, and COVID deaths, pneumonia deaths are just slightly below COVID deaths. You know, it's really interesting what you just said about um, states. And it's almost as if maybe finally something has turned when it comes to the um, lionization of Andrew Cuomo. You're noticing now there are Democrats in the state legislature of New York who are seeking to revoke his uh, his emergency power authority, primarily catalyzed from uh, the cover-up having to do with uh, uh, congregate home beds. That's an important piece, right. the cover-up that they right. hid information not just from Republicans and the DOJ, but right. from Democrats right. who are now suddenly outraged yeah. because their constituents who passed away in uh, care centers – in New York were denied information to know what was really going on. Yeah. And you look at New York and, you know, finally, I I think they're beginning to look at numbers. I think they're fun. I mean, 46,000 deaths in New York, 46,000 deaths in New York. Now, New York was the good was the good governor. DeSantis was the bad governor. Florida, half that number. That's right. Half that number. No mitigation. And of course, one should be looking at it as a percentage of the population, but it also should be adjusted for age because we know the demographic that's most at risk are elderly. And I believe Florida has more elderly than New York. Of course it does. And it also is ethnically diverse and it's also a bigger population and it has a thousand less deaths per million population. Fewer. Fewer. Right. Nice. We'll cover that. No, no, good. No, but right. But right. (laughs) Right. But but it's it's fascinating. That's exactly right. Cuomo is the hero. 
when he's actually the goat. DeSantis is the goat when he's actually the hero. Correct. And the fascinating thing six months ago was watching the newspapers and television stations when they could at the time, comparing the terrible record of Florida, Texas, and Arizona to lovely California. Oops, then what happened? They stopped making that comparison right. because California and New York slid off into the toilet. That's right. I will also notice that the proliferation of COVID tickers in most uh, uh, news reports has declined sharply since Joe Biden ascended to the presidency. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Okay. Sorry for that distraction. No, that's no, exactly, no, no. That is the point. So here we are talking about COVID, and then you think about so, uh, the the direction that this country went in response to COVID, and again, we're not COVID deniers. I'm not. I wear a mask. I don't Seth even makes know what fun that is. of me. What's ma- a COVID denier? Uh, somebody who uh, thinks that this is a disease that's made up by the internet, and and uh, so, someone who wants to mitigate our response to it and impose reasonable limitations never on even it. Met a COVID denier? Yes, I've met a few. You have? Yes, okay. but in my case, uh, so. I take rational, I think, measures to protect myself and my family. I Yes, I wear a mask. You've called it a diaper hanging on my face, among other things. That doesn't make you a denier. We're joking about the steps one can take. And as somebody who uh, celebrates liberty, I make the choice to do these things because I think it's in my interest, in my family's interest, and it allows me in the kinds of work I do to, uh, to work with people without them having reasons to be objective objecting to the substance of yeah, what you don't want to make someone uncomfortable i get that i so, get that so going back to this question though this idea that we have this delusion that things are fated to get better year over year right i think also in some sense that this is a uniquely and especially american idea okay. over the last hundred years and the reason i think this is because of the spectacular run of sort of national good luck that our position has given us we are isolated by Canada, Mexico, fish, and fish, which is about the best set of physical defenses you could have. This is Lincoln's speech to the Lyceum, by the way. We we made reference to it before, (laughs) and of course, we just celebrated his birthday on the 12th, and in fact, he talks about exactly that idea. So please don't shoot us that we're talking about, yes, Americans worked really, really hard, but even Abraham Lincoln recognized we are a lucky people. Let me come back on that point. Let me have Lewis fill it out when we come back as we head into the break real quickly. And let me put in a word for balance of nature. I take it every single day. It is, from what I can tell, the most effective whole food supplement on the market. It has kept me well for over a year. Tens of thousands of vital nutrients in one daily dose. It's all natural, vine-ripened fruits and veggies picked at their peak of ripeness, reduced into vegetarian capsules using their unique cold-pressed process. Pineapple, papaya, blueberries, garlic, cayenne pepper, wheatgrass, good, strong, potent stuff. And they have a great deal. 800-246-8751 is their number. The deal, free shipping and 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm here with the click and clack of epistemology, Hugh and Lewis Hallman. Do you remember click and clack? Tom and, uh, yes, yes Tom and his brother. Ray. Tom and Ray. Anyway, Lewis, you were making a really important and interesting point about trajectories of sociology and politics in America. So, so the, the central point that we want to talk about is this, is this main delusion that has affected us over the last hundred years or so. And it's the idea that things are 
fated to get better year over year that that they are or are in some sense ordained to and it's a particularly american phenomenon as we were saying both in part because of the sheer geographic advantage that the united states possesses right it's ocean moats uh, deserts and mountains to the south, um, tundra to the north, effectively. Uh, and then Don't tell that to Canadians. Yes, we consider them tundra, but go forward. The lack of any you know, real foreign wars uh, and entanglements, at least, that have come directly to harm us here and the fact that we have the richest set of agricultural land on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so 200 years of bipartisan effort really have yet to screw this up for us. Mm-hmm. You know, so in, in some sense, it's almost an excusable delusion because in a very real sense for most Americans, things have in fact gotten better every year, more or less unabated for the last coming up on two and a half centuries now. And we need to, I think, really wrestle with this idea because this year I think was one of the first real indicators that we've had in a long time that this is in fact a delusion. And I think one of the clearest indicators of this is the fact that uh, through 2020, 150 million people around the world fell back into extreme poverty, the definition of which is uh, subsisting on less than $2 a day. $2 a day. And looking at how the media covers the U.S. poverty rates, the U.S. uh, uh, treatment of its poor – the most recent example Lewis and I were puzzling over was The Economist in this last week. Uh, loved the fact that it could trumpet about American exceptionalism, that in fact America has the largest percentage of its children in poverty than almost any place else on the planet. 21% of American children are in poverty, that's in quotation marks, as defined by, and here's the important part, living below the 50% median income. And so they then compare it. To be clear, it's yeah. actually, you have to be at 50% of the median income level in that country. That's correct. In but that they, country. But they don't compare yeah. it. They right. just said 21% for America is 20. And then they then give examples that in France, we're twice as bad as France and we're three times as bad as Poland. In fact, we're five times worse than Greece and six times worse than Hungary. But then let's do a little math. So the Americans are delusional. They think things are going to get better because, in fact, we are so much better off than most other places on the planet. Americans are so much better off that we forget it and we start decrying our impoverished when the median income in the U.S. is $45,000 a year. The median income in France is 31000 In other words, there's 50% more income in those households that are deemed poor than there are in France. And in Poland, which were three times worse than, the median income is 19000 So it's about so uh, two to, and a half times. To be clear, anyone on the right-hand edge of that qualifier for the U.S., anyone who's, who's in our definition of poverty, would be making $22,500 or less per year. $22,500 is, in fact... About 25% more, if I'm doing that, uh, 20% more than the Polish median income. So our poor are, in fact, richer than their average right. significantly. Right. right. And you go through. And yet the- they're making the claim, because of this, that three times more American children live in poverty than do Polish children. 
as a as a percentage of the population. That is fascinating to me. And so now we have this narrative where uh, we think in some ways things are always going to get better and they must and should and it's preordained and established. And then we compare ourselves to other places in these non-numeric ways uh, and try to now move that needle on these kinds of measures. It's a zero-sum game because the very features that we're going to attach to create the solutions likely will destroy the very successes that have given rise to the fact that the U.S. median income is twice what it is and more than twice what it is in Poland, that it is nearly uh, eight times what it is in Hungary, which under that same metric, Hungary has, uh, according to these fine folks, I will now find it again, uh, only 3% of its children living in poverty. Well, their median income is $6,700. Right, right. So you think about what, and you see these analyses from time to time, what the poor have in America, right? What the poor have in America is much the same of what the middle class would have had in the 1940s in America. Correct. Right. I mean, we, we, we look at statistics like the CPI, one of Lewis's favorite subjects, CPI and PPI, the consumer price index, and we never add to that the improvements in the quality of life from the kind of television you now have than than you did in 1970 or 1954, uh, the kinds of telephone you healthcare have. Healthcare access. Healthcare. The kind and of car the, that you drive. Right, the kind outcomes of, of all of those things. Yeah. And so we continue to beat ourselves up for the fact that we somehow have stagnated wages without any kind of correction of those understandings based on the massive improvements in quality and character of what we have uh, that can be bought with the same dollars uh, that we're measuring or pretending to measure from 1970 or uh, 1950. There's also something, too, when people just look at these statistics where they think of um, uh, uh, the poor person in America – statistics, statistically, they think of them as a statistic. That is to say, they tend to think of that person being poor throughout their life. This is a really great point, Right. Seth. This I'm is an important that you point. Bring this up. You want to make it? You can make it. You can make it better than I can. But, so, but the point is, it's not. Right. And so, so the thing about, about these, these kinds of statistics, particularly tracking poverty, is that when you look at the data as a whole, you actually really miss out on a lot of the information because we don't stay in the same economic trajectory throughout our lives, Right. As you know, if I'm in my, my 20s, I likely have – I may have a high degree of student loans. I may – I'm probably working a more entry-level job. I'm probably not likely to be a surgeon or a doctor when compared to, say, a 40-year-old. I haven't had the time or the opportunity to acquire property and equity yet. And so the economic uh, uh, existence, the budget level, the wealth level is much more dependent on how old you are as much as almost any other factor. And so – one of the, the really great things that this also explains that is never brought up uh, in looking at the kind of econometric analyses around this Mobility. is – well, not only that, but uh, uh, sort of the sort of racial, racial statistics that you're Racial demographic at. differences, yep. Because what people don't take into account is that the average uh, uh, Latino person in the U.S. is age 30 while the average white person is age 50. And those have very different economic circumstances between 30-year-olds and 50-year-olds. No matter what color, race, or kind. Perfect. We'll do more of this when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm Hugh Hallman. Lewis Hallman's joined me in the studio. We've 
inadvertently had to take over the show because Seth stepped out to get a drink of water and he discovered that the uh, drinking fountain on this floor is not working. And apparently someone has uh, instituted a new system to not only keep the water from flowing in it at all, but to monitor that there are no drips. He's now locked on another floor that had a working drinking fountain, and he does not have his keys to get back in. So Lewis and I are delighted to carry on the show. And I'm going to start with a quote from uh, one of my favorite uh, people on the planet ever, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And he writes, In the great journal of things happening under the sun, we find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the fairest portion of the earth as regards the extent of territory, fertility of soil, and salubrity of climate. We find ourselves under the government of a system of political institutions conducing more essentially to the ends of civil and religious liberty than any which the history of former times tell us. Abraham Lincoln sets the table for Lewis here with the understanding that it's better to be lucky than good. And the the American people found themselves in a very, very lucky position and have exploited that well in a good sense of the term. They've worked very hard to create something. And yet, well, we are stuck here again. We've taken this run of good luck and we've internalized it in a weird and sort of... Uh, uh, harmful way where we feel that things are fated to get better, right? It's it's really encapsulated in the quote that the the arc of history is long and bend towards justice, right? That this notion that progress is good. Martin Luther King. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that progress is inevitable and things will get better is is just sort of absurd on the face of it. So give some examples of how we have instituted in our society uh, systems that try to assure that. Sure. So some of the things that we've done are to create things, uh, social safety nets and other institutions. Social security is a great example, but you can even look at, at something as simple as like a law firm, for instance, any kind of organization. And we'll, what you will find in these, if you sort of look through American economic life, is that many of these institutions that really sort of came into their own during the 20th century and and are really our political mainstays now have what are called embedded growth obligations to them. Now, what this means... Social Security is an example. It's a great example. Sure. So uh, Social Security, uh, when it was originally started, was very demographically healthy. You had uh, a retirement age of, I believe, was it 65 at the start? Uh, And then the average life expectancy of Americans was two years at that point, and you had 10 workers for every retiree. And so the idea is is that for every retiree that, that gets to the top, you have a network of employees below them who are able to accrue benefits. And as long as you can then keep this train going of additional people below you, the system still works. Now, you could also look at a law firm as another example of this. You've got a certain number of partners, right? And then you have to hire in significantly more junior associates to run the firm. And eventually those associates either will be attrited out of the firm, but they'll probably at some point expect to become partners themselves. And so you need a continual expansion in the number of lawyers if everybody's going to make partner. Yes, but that, and soon you end up with everybody becoming a lawyer, which is a hor- horrific. Right, yes. and it's a, it's a completely unsustaining uh, cycle. Well, so, so so Social Security built on the notion that you would have 10 workers for every retiree and that that retiree would only live for two years or so. 
that made sense. Now here we are in present day. Right. We have reduced in many instances, depending on health and other circumstances, the qualification to get Social Security. And the number of people supporting each person on Social Security is approximately two? Uh, approximately two to one. And we've had additional gains in life expectancy of about three months gain in life expectancy for every calendar year that's passed. So people are living about 20 years longer than they were when Social Security was first implemented. And so we have a lot longer to pay out. And we've not, the the price we pay, the amount we put into that system as workers has not risen to the same level as the benefits have increased. Correct. So now we have a system that pretends that things are always going to get better, that by growing the economy in the U.S., we are going to grow ourselves out of uh, the spending holes we've created. And we now have these problems where our children and our children's children have the expectations that things will get better. Well, we'll talk about how that actually happens when we come back. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman, and we're delighted to fill in for Seth on The Seth Liebson Show. Welcome back to The Seth Liebson Show. I'm Hugh Hallman, joined by Lewis Hallman. Here we are on KKNT 960, The Patriot, and the... Luck that the Americans have had is extraordinary, but the luck of prior generations was uh, enhanced by the fact that they worked really, really hard and created great wealth that have been, as Abraham Lincoln described in his speech to the Lyceum in 1838, passed on to us as uh, as a legacy. And yet, Lewis, you have a thought about how, what we've done with that legacy. So uh, my... Fear is that we are turning a lot of this legacy over to utopians, right? People who think that with the right top-down scheme that they implement, that they can intellectually solve the economy and make things better for everybody. When in reality, the, there, there's really only three things, I think, that can really lead to any kind of civilizational or societal progression. It's hard work, investment, and gratification deferral on a mass scale. Gratification deferral. Imagine that. We now have an entire society of folks, many of whom are now sitting at home collecting checks, uh, enjoying the wealth that has been created by others, uh, and avoiding having to go back to work. One of our greatest crises now is can we get classrooms reopened? Well, even before that, just, you know, you, we have the increasing cycle of debt-based sort of financial life, you know, with the explosion of credit card debt amongst Americans and uh, sort of just a, a skyrocketing debt to income ratios as time has passed. You know, nothing is less de deferred gratification than I'm going to get this jet ski and put it on my credit card. Sort of the opposite, wouldn't you think? And we have uh, generations before us who sought to make sure that their children enjoyed a life that was better than they themselves had enjoyed. Right. And your point to open the show was that there, as coming out of that legacy is some notion that things are inevitably going to improve, that we are... Right. You know, if you don't need to contribute and do the hard work, you can just hang on for the ride and things will get better. Then that opens the door for all kinds of silly wish fulfillment policy. I mean, I, I still remember, this is not a new phenomenon. 
entirely. But I, I remember when I was a child and you would come home from city council meetings and talk about, you know, nincompoops who could not understand the distinction between a one-time revenue occurrence and a recurring revenue stream. I don't believe I ever used the word nincompoop. No, but that, that's what, my editorialization. But what you're talking about is the fact that we have uh, government gets money. And when it gets money, there are two kinds of money it gets. One-time piles of money it gets from unusual events and then the recurring sources of cash flow that it gets from taxation and other kinds of activity and operations. And some folks would like to take a one-time money, and we, we see it now. You've got massive amounts of COVID dollars coming from the federal government to the state with some folks designating this one-time uh, jackpot as the source of money for this year and continuing expenditures of the same kind into the future with no understanding that there's not going to be, highly likely, a, continuing, repeat. a repeat continuing jackpots. So how do we get ourselves out of this, Lou? What's your sense? Well, you're, I mean, you're the younger generation <laughs> here. So it's, it's hard to say, really. So a lot of this is going to have to do with changing our cultural values and our understandings of, of how we want to proceed and, and, and how indeed we want what, what it is we want. You know, what we decide is a, a virtuous thing to go for as a society. And part of the issue right now is I think that we're in such flux and transition with the states of our political parties where different sort of core constituencies are transferring back and forth between them, where we are really staggeringly unable to come together even as parties and think about what it is we want to have for ourselves, what our vision of the future is going to be. And I think that that without getting something like that on the table, it's a lot – it's very easy to just let the system run business as usual and keep staving the problem off and never addressing these things. Well, business as usual has gone from uh – uh, even in, during my era, and I'm I'm often uh, criticized by my children for talking about things that occurred during my lifetime, like President Reagan uh, running a, a, a deficit while trying to fight against the continuing growth of the federal government's expenditures and his ultimate decision. And it is a trade-off. And Lou, I think you're probably best at reminding folks that you can you can uh, afford many many things, but you can't afford everything. And right. life is trade offs. And in Reagan's case, he traded off controlling the budget deficit growth with conquering uh, and finally putting an end to the Soviet Union and its its threat not only to the United States and the stability of the world, but also to the hundreds of millions of people that were under the Soviet boot. So, so the big criticism that we have here is against these sort of, you know, and the kitchen sink utopian ideas. Whenever a politician comes to you and says that they have a solution, you, you ought to be very skeptical of that because there are no solutions in this world. In order to get a beneficial outcome, we necessarily have to give something else up. We have to make trade-offs. If I want more uh, – if I want to reduce the classroom sizes, uh, you know, for my students – for kids in schools – then I've either got to hire more teachers or raise money or do some other thing, right? Nothing is free. And so it is incumbent on us, you know, to, to really ask these questions and figure out why are we getting what we're getting and, and sort of refuse to allow the sort of grotesque pork barreling that we've seen. Well, and are we really getting what we're getting? So we now have arguments going on in Congress for another $1.9 trillion. 
And uh, one of the gravest concerns you and I share is that the continuing massive expenditure by the federal government is actually causing inflation, but not in the way we traditionally have seen. We traditionally see huge expenditures of money uh, going to householders that then spend that money on daily needs and uh, jet skis, for example. But in this instance, most of the money that has come out of the federal government hasn't gone to mom and pop uh, to pay their mortgage and buy food. It's gone to Boeing. It's gone to Amazon. It's gone to big firms. It's gone to very, very large entities that have very large investors who then are taking those dollars and now investing them in additional assets, either real estate investments or assets in the market. And what have we seen? The prices from very low money, also a price paid by taxes, by taxpayers, because the the uh, subsidy to keep interest rates extremely low comes at the cost of the federal government buying its own debt to keep those the, the, the prices low. So now we're all benefiting from low interest rates and low inflation, pretending that this is going to go on forever when the fundamentals, to me, look broken. You've got a overpriced market assets, and you've got overpriced real estate that only work as long as interest rates remain this extraordinarily low. Which is all going to change when the baby boomers as a global demography retire en masse starting in 2022. And start selling off their assets in order to cash them in and buy the stuff they want instead of the retirement assets they've held. He's Lewis Hallman. I'm Hugh Hallman. We want to thank Seth Liebson for allowing us to fill in. We're here on KKNT 960, The Patriot. We're going to be right back in a moment for wrapping up. Indeed, you really do need to kiss an angel good morning and let her know you think about her when you're gone. I'm Hugh Hallman. He's Lewis Hallman. We want to thank Seth Liebson for the opportunity to fill in on his show. Uh, we hope that he's uh, found his keys and can get off the floor, uh, but it does at least have a working drinking fountain, so he won't, uh, he won't expire from lack of water. Uh, Lewis, closing thoughts. So we've been talking about the delusion that things are fated to get better uh, year over year. And we have been talking about the idea that, you know, there there are really only three methods by which civilization improves. It's hard work, uh, investment, and gratification deferral. And that this is really, in fact, a much older set of concerns. I'm actually reminded of nothing quite so much uh, as the Abrahamic story in the Bible, which is where Abraham is called by God to potentially sacrifice his son uh, and is in in biblical scripture at least the origin of sacrifice, which is a huge thing for humanity because you know an- anthropologically the notion of sacrifice is akin to discovering the future, right? It allows you to engage in in gratification deferral. That's what sacrifice is is giving up something valuable now in the present for a a the promise of something better in the future. It is literally. It's making a deal with the future in some sense. Well, in fact, that is exactly what God was offering, that sacrificing your son for uh, a, a better deal in the future. And ultimately, your point is that we've begun creating in our social system some notion that we are endowed with the right that things are going to get better, forgetting that the basis in that is that Abrahamic story that sacrifice is the font of the future. Correct. That in order to have the great benefits of that future, 
one needs to sacrifice today, save, uh, work hard, and uh, ultimately build a better future for your children. And if we really want to hammer this lesson home, then we should take a moment to think beyond the comforts of our of our own shores and look at the real ramifications of this pandemic as brutal and ugly and awful as it has been here. Look at what has happened abroad. And 150 million souls in poverty, the most kind of backbreaking, dire poverty that we can even imagine. And in part, that has come as the price to save lives in the United States and do so inartfully. Correct. That we have been beating this drum, that we know who is at risk. Our young people should be in school getting educated so that they can continue to put their shoulders to the same wheel and continue to lift this nation as the brightest shining city on a hill that has lifted more people out of poverty than any other society or engine known in human history. Thank you for joining us today. God bless and class dismissed.